Let's pray again. Our God and Father, we thank you for the encouragement of great hymn texts, songs that have been written by the redeemed. For those of us who are looking to you, trusting that you will be faithful to your word, not only to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness, but to transform us, to make us new from the inside out so that one day we would have hearts that are perfectly conformed to all that you are, souls that are perfectly prepared to receive all the good and beauty and glory of heaven itself, to know Christ intimately, to see him face to face, and have no fear that in his perfect and burning holiness we would be condemned, be found unrighteous in any way, but that because of all that he is, because of all that you have done to save us, we would be welcomed into our eternal home. We have sung this morning of the great hope in our hearts to see Jesus and to be with him. And truly we cry, oh Lord Jesus, come, come soon. But even if this is not the day of your arrival, we trust you in that and know that you have good purposes for us to find, for us to accomplish. And so we yield ourselves to all your holy will. By faith we bow this morning before the the cross that is so precious to us, the cross where our sins were taken, the cross where you bore the wrath of Almighty God that we had earned for our sins, the cross where you accomplished what we never could and cried in mighty victory. It is finished. We thank you for this cross. We pray that its shadow would loom large over our lives that its shadow would be expulsive of every other shadow that creeps across our souls on this day. And for some, it is the shadow of financial difficulty or physical weakness or spiritual difficulty or marital strife. Oh, Lord God, there are a thousand shadows that steal our joy and diminish our faith, but we pray that the shadow of the cross would be the exclusive only power at work in our hearts. We ask that you would open our eyes to see your word as it is. Open the ears of our hearts to hear your spirit as he speaks. And please, Lord God, do everything that you have purposed from long ago that would not only give you glory and honor, but that would bring life to us. Oh, how we need you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you open your Bibles this morning to Romans 10? Romans is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the saints who were living in Rome in the first century, somewhere around 60 AD. And it has been the focus of our congregation's study for a number of months now. And we are coming to the end of a particular section Uh, And and I do hope to make my way almost to the end of chapter 11. We're going to save the last four verses of chapter 11 for next week in conjunction with our uh, communion service, which we have the second Sunday of each month. 
and there's some things there that I think will fit beautifully. So we have a lot to cover, but we're going to do kind of a high-altitude flyover. That's helpful. Sometimes you need to be on the ground going step by step, and sometimes you need to fly high so you can see the larger landscape. That's been one of the joys of relocating to a place like Utah and flying in and out of Salt Lake. You are, you are going to be able to look out over territory that back east where I grew up, you just don't see it. And a couple of our trips have taken us south to Phoenix to make connections, uh, and you know what lies between here and Phoenix, and what a joy it is for, you know, newbies like us, uh, and I'm sure the people around us wonder, you know, why our noses are pressed against the glass. We're just staring down, like, look at those big cracks in the ground. It's spectacular. Well, there are some spectacular things for us to see, and we kind of need to fly over this at a high altitude. So that means uh, there are going to be some things that we kind of skip over, not because I think they're unimportant, but an effort to maintain the high-level view. So be patient. And um, I, I don't have plans at this point to come back, you know, and land that plane, so to speak, and, and get out and walk around in some of these uh, really intriguing, interesting places, but I'd be happy to talk about that with any of you who might have that kind of interest, all right? So we worked our way through verse 15 last week, that whole sequence, the sovereign process of gospel mission where Paul asks four key questions, and, and those questions are lined up kind of in reverse engineering, helps us figure out what God's purpose was and is and what he will accomplish uh, in a great day. And verse 13 begins that series of questions, and then it culminates with this exclamation of great joy in verse 15, as it is written, Paul's quoting Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And that's where we left it off last week. So I want to resume reading this morning in verse 16, because now Paul goes into a series of questions that are important for us. So you follow along as I begin reading Romans 10, 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For, and this is a quotation from Psalm 19, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. That's God speaking through Moses to Israel specifically. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. And again, to put that in context, God is actually speaking through the prophet Isaiah to Israel, but he's saying, you know what? You won't believe in me? I'm turning to the Gentiles. Let's read on. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? And now he quotes from that portion of the Kings. Lord, 
They have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to Elijah? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you... If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in? That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, that's Israel, neither will he spare Israel you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion who will banish ungodliness from Jacob and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. 
For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. This is the word of the Lord. It's a long section, isn't it? And it's challenging to read. And I know it's challenging for you to listen to someone else read it. There's so much here. But as I said, we're, we're going to fly the, the, the sermon plane at about 35,000 feet. And we're going to peer out through the windows at some of the key thoughts here. And then perhaps in the course of the week, you can go back and, and in a sense, land the plane, get out and walk around in some of those spots that, uh, by the Spirit's leading, I, I trust to highlight this morning. Two big categories for you, first of all, to think in, all right? Did you guys see the big house going up across the fence? That's quite amazing to watch. And um, it's amazing for several reasons. One of those, I think when we first moved out here, I remember this initial house with a full two acres going on the market for 525000 which at the time I thought, oh, wow, that is big bucks. Now, I wish I had just coughed it up, right? Because <laughs> the developer bought it and subdivided it and is walking away you know, with enough money to buy whatever Christmas presents he wants this year. Well, that house is being framed out. And you can kind of get an idea of what the structure, you know, will look like. And even if you stare over the fence, you can see various rooms taking shape and, and uh, certain levels and all of that. So let me give you a couple of big categories in a sense. Like these are the two floors we're going to think in terms of today. First, uh, the first floor is the rejection of the gospel. The second is the reception of the gospel, if you will. And interestingly enough, the reception of the gospel actually rests on the rejection. Now that may seem like, what? And, and some of the Romans were struggling in similar ways, but Paul is going to explain it under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and I hope this will be helpful for you too. Let, let's go into the first floor, if you will, and, and consider the rejection of the gospel message. Look again at verse 16. They have not all obeyed the gospel. Now, now, that's in response to what Paul has just said about here's the divine process for giving the gospel and oh, beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. So then the question is, well, why, why isn't everybody listening and believing? Well, now Paul's going to give us an answer. They've not all obeyed. And he says, you're right. For Isaiah says, that God predicted this in the Old Testament. Isaiah actually raised a question. Lord, this is a great message you've given me, but who's actually believing it? Who will believe it? And Paul quotes Isaiah as a demonstration that God predicted long ago that many in Israel would choose to ignore, to reject outright, to disobey God's good news. Then Paul includes this little reminder to all of us, verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Be careful how you hear because God's expectation when he gives us the word, when it is recorded on the pages, is that we would read it and believe it and respond. Hearing is always tied to obedience in the scriptures. And here, some choose to disobey the gospel they hear. Number two, moving on, look at verse 18. Some choose to ignore the witness that they hear. Paul says, but I ask, have they not heard? Well, indeed they have. And isn't it interesting? He goes back where he was in the opening chapters of Romans. He quotes Psalm 19, which tells us that the heavens actually declare the glory of God. And part of that psalm, as he quotes here, verse 4, if you want to cross-reference it, their voice, that is the voice of creation, the voice of 
of planet Earth, if you will, the voice of the sky above, of the moon and stars and sun, that voice goes out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. The testimony of creation is a powerful voice. Many Israelites in both Isaiah's day and Paul's day ignored the voice of creation. And so it is even in our day. How many there are who believe the popular uh, theories of evolution and naturalism, which, which give God no credit whatsoever for what he actually has done choosing to ignore the fingerprints of the creator God and the complicated structures of the human eye or the staggering amount of information coded into a single strand of DNA. Do you know scientists estimate that one gram of DNA, just one gram, can hold up to 250, 15 million gigabytes of information? I knew I would do this. I left a thumb drive in my uh, satchel there. I meant to stick it in my pocket, but everybody knows what a little flash drive, thumb drive looks like, right? And the one I was going to bring has one gigabyte. I, I kind of wanted to do the math, but I don't know where you start. And some of you, you know, math heads will, will tell me, oh, it would have been really simple to take in all of 20 seconds. But I, I was wondering, what, what kind of space would 215 million flash drives occupy? Would it fill up this room? You know, would it fill up the Vivint Center? Would it fill up, you know, 17 boxcars? Somebody figure that out and let me know. Because I actually want to marvel even more. So you got to calculate what the actual volume of a little thumb drive is and then multiply it by 215 million. And there you have it. So I know how to get there. I just didn't do it. But that's what one gram of DNA holds. And it just all happened by random chance. No, you've got to be deaf to the voice of creation to say, there's no God. There's no God. You gotta be blind to, go, to, to look around this world and go, eh, there's nobody who created this. Biodiversity is a term used to describe the enormous variety of life on Earth. It can be used more specifically to refer to all of the species in one region or ecosystem. But if you think of biodiversity in terms of the entire world, all the living things, plants, bacteria, animals, and humans. This is staggering. Listen to this. I pulled this off of nationalgeographic.org. Scientists have estimated that there are around 8.7 million species of plants and animals in existence. However, only around 1.2 million species have been identified and described so far, most of which are insects. This means that millions of other organisms remain a complete mystery to us. How did all this magnificent variety and diversity come to be? Naturalism tries to suggest that all of this just happened randomly. <laughs> really? God says, in the beginning, I created all that is. So the problem, going back to the text, is not that the Jews never heard they just chose not to respond to what they were hearing in the world that they were created and placed into. The world you live in cries out in high volume. Your creator is a powerful, wise, glorious God. Seek him. 
We'll go back to verse 19. Even as some choose to ignore what they hear, to disobey what they hear, some choose to reject the relationship they understand. Now verse 19, Paul says, but I asked, did Israel not understand? And Paul's answer from Scripture shows that it's not a lack of understanding, but a stubborn refusal to submit to God in relationship to him. And, and notice what he does. First, Moses says, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 32, 21, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. This is God speaking through Moses to Israel as, as they were rebelling again. He says, with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. You know, jealousy only exists where there is a relationship of some kind and a significant one at that. There are a lot of people in the world today, very few of them would fall into the category of people I would know well enough to even be jealous about something. The relationship I have with my wife, though, is of a singular kind, and it's possible that some could try to intrude on that relationship, or she could make a choice that would create jealousy in my heart. She wouldn't even have to do it, just, you know, even lack of time in the coming week where I don't see her very much. And, and if I felt like, you know, I'm getting the short end of the stick because she's so busy, uh, you know, with other people or even some of the responsibilities. She subs periodically in, in teaching uh, different classes and age groups from elementary school through high school classes. And I'm happy for her to do that. But if you know, if, if she came to me this evening and said, by the way, I'm subbing every single day this week, and as a matter of fact, it's gonna take so much of my time that I won't even see you until Friday night. I'd be like, what? Hey, what? Uh, no, what about me? I'm jealous over her time. Jealousy presupposes that there's a relationship that's significant here, and God is certainly jealous for his people, and actually by turning away from them in their rebellion and sin, he's actually trying to create or provoke jealousy in their hearts. Now, why would Israel be jealous of Gentiles, or even as he said in, in Deuteronomy 32, 21, a foolish nation? Well, because they see God at work in ways, in the Gentile people, that he's no longer working for them. In Paul's day, they were seeing the gospel call move throughout cities and cultures, and they were watching the Spirit of God come in great power and change people and perform miracles. And that work of calling and saving and reconciling people to himself, of building churches and, and just accomplishing mighty things, was intended to provoke those rebel Israelites to say, where's God at work for us? How come I don't get in on some of those powerful experiences? Well, Paul goes on, then Isaiah is so bold as to say, this is Isaiah 65, 1, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. And, and that's God again saying, you know what, Israel, if you don't want any part with me, if you don't want to obey my word, if you don't want to enter into the, the blessing of relationship with me, I'm gonna go find people who aren't even looking for me right now, but when I show up, they're gonna respond in faith. And that's exactly what the Gentiles have done. So the problem is not that religious Jews fail to understand what creation tells them about their God or what revelation, specifically the word of God, says to them about God. The problem is they have not responded in faith. And yet Paul continues, look again at the text, but of Israel he says, Isaiah 65 two, all day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary pe people. What a tragedy. 
So where does the problem lie? Is it actually that God walked away from his people? No, they're the ones that are described by two different terms, disobedient and contrary. That is, first of all, they've refused to go along with God. How terrifying that they have heard the truth. They've seen it in the world. They've understood the nature of their unique relationship and yet refused to go along with God. And then the term contrary actually conveys the idea of being antagonistic toward God, which seems so ironic, isn't it? Because there's never been a more religious culture or people group in all of history than the Jews. Even if you have the privilege of traveling to Israel today and just sit as an observer, observer in the back of some of their synagogues and, and you watch, I mean, how they just meticulously walk through their particular orders of worship and the scriptures and they memorize and devote themselves to it and they observe the feasts and the holy days and they're so meticulous in the observation, but they're actually not doing it by faith in God in this gospel way. But here is God patiently persisting, holding out his hands to Israel. I mean, we extend our hands toward people that we want to receive, don't we? Whether little children, whether you, 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 you even kneel down sometimes, get it right at their level and say, come here. And, and how cool is it when a little one runs to you? And what do you do? Do you just keep your arms extended? That's awkward. No, you, you receive them. And I want you to visualize this. God standing before, not just Israel, but Gentile nations of all kinds with arms extended saying, come to me, come to me, I will receive you. And yet, they turn and run away. I wonder if this describes some of you. You say, well, I'm not Jewish that I know of, but you know, you can still live in the same way toward the God who stands ever before you saying, come to me. And you can be polite about it, but still be a rebel. You know, whether you say no thank you to God or shake your fist in his face, it, it still amounts to a refusal. It amounts to disobedience and contrariness. Are you disobedient to the gospel this morning that calls you to repent and believe? Are you ignoring the worldwide witness of the creator who puts you here? Are, we, are you rejecting what in your heart of hearts you really do understand? You just, you just don't want to acknowledge it or think about it? Are you refusing the outstretched arms, the hands of God? Well, look now at chapter 11, verse 1, and, and notice where Paul carries the conversation. I ask then. The problem's not on God's side, but someone still might say, well, but did God reject his people? And, and a specific point of application in that question, I think, would be, is Israel beyond the hope of salvation? And emphatically, Paul says, by no means. Remember all the conversations we've had in recent weeks about how great God's mercy is? Here's just another expression of that. They actually aren't beyond the hope of salvation. Now, so, so we were first looking at the rejection of the gospel message, but now we're gonna look at the reception of it, okay? So we're on the second floor, which in an interesting and surprising way kind of rests on floor number one. The rejection of the Jews has actually turned into something really amazing, some great privilege. You know it, but we're still gonna go deeper into this there's a great privilege here uh, that comes with God turning to Gentiles like the vast majority of us are, and it leads to the reception of the gospel. And there are two words I want you to, to now, like two rooms, if you will, in the second floor of reception, and these two words are some and many. Some and many, okay? Now, look, first, look, with, look with me first at verses one through six, because some Israelites believe 
despite their rejection, some Israelites believe because God really does preserve a remnant. And, and so in answer to this question, what does Paul do? He steps forward as, as his own visual aid. He's like, hey, no, it, for those of you who may think that God has rejected his people, I'll be witness number one. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And God showed him mercy, didn't he? Saved him. I mean, he wasn't just like indifferent toward the gospel. He was antagonistic, contrary to it, living his whole life as, as a hostile foe. But God had mercy on him as he writes in 1 Timothy 1. You can go there later and read that beautiful testimony where he says, I was before a persecutor, a blasphemer, did great injury to the church, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly. That is, I was ignorant of all that God really was, thought I knew, didn't full of self-righteousness, deaf, blind to the truth. But God had mercy. Now Paul goes on to say, do you know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? And this story is recorded in 1 Kings 19. Land the plane there later, get out, walk around 1 Kings 19, read that whole story. But here we're gonna fly over and let me point out a couple of things through Paul. And here's what Elijah said to Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. And he's talking about the wicked queen in particular, Jezebel, threatened him, Ahab, just wicked rulers. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? First Kings nineteen eighteen, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. We sometimes refer to the Elijah syndrome, don't we? Lord, I'm the only faithful one left on planet Earth. I'm the only one at Gospel Hope who gets it. Only one who has a sincere heart of love and service for you. Oh, poor me. And just like he said to Elijah, God would say to you, not poor you. There's 7,000 more you don't even know about. That's because I'm doing a mighty work. Some believe because God preserves his remnant. So look at verse five. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And and then Paul's always looking for an opportunity to kind of go back to the gospel and reinforce. And I almost think this is like a a little side trail. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. That sounds like a whole bunch of points we've covered so far in the first 10 chapters, right? But fly the plane back up, high level. So too at the present time there's a remnant chosen by grace. You're not the only ones. Our little church is not the only operation God has going on planet earth. Don't let your earthly eyes fool you. God's work is always greater than what you and I can see at any given moment. Now, second heading, and it's real close to the first. I almost made this two, but Paul says two different things, and I want to draw your attention to it. So look at verse seven. Uh, Some Israelites believe because God preserves a remnant Here's the second psalm for our consideration. Some Israelites believe because God saves his elect. Verse seven, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Uh, No, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And then verse eight is a quotation of Isaiah 29, 10. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. That's sobering, isn't it? That's where your present unbelief will lead you. And some of you who stand at a crossroads of faith saying, hmm, I'm considering this. I'm just not sure I want to take the step. Take the step before you cannot take the step. 
If you have any inclination in your soul today to turn from your sins and turn in faith to Jesus Christ, do it because these are lessons from history of people who knew the truth, who heard it with their ears, even their heart ears, if you will, who saw God work mightily, and yet because they refused to enter into that by faith, there came a point where God said, I'm done. There are no more opportunities for you. That terrifies me, and it ought to terrify every single one of us. Verse 9, and David says, Psalm 69, 22 and 23, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. I think that is actually, uh, we might call it this and put it in the modern day terms, like the, the Lord's table, the table of fellowship. And so they continued to be really religious, but because they weren't willing to submit their hearts to God, it just became nothing more than religious ceremony, ritual, it's empty, it's empty of all relationship with God, empty of all meaning, and ultimately, as David goes on to write, becomes a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Ah, but praise God, verse seven, some believe because God does save those that he has chosen. All right, so that's room number one on the second floor of reception. Some believe. Some Israelites believe. But now, look at verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, wait, push the pause button there. We've got we've to meditate on these two phrases, riches for the world, riches for the Gentiles. This is what takes us into the second room of reception where I would actually say many Gentiles in Paul's day and in every day since then right up to this very moment, many Gentiles believe because God has turned Israel's rejection into Gentile salvation. What a God. And you know, Paul frequently uses the word riches, as we see it here in verse 12, to refer to the riches of God's grace and mercy. He did it back in chapter 2, verse 4. He did it back in chapter 9, verse 23. He'll do it in chapter 11, verse 33. And you can find it in other New Testament letters of his. But when we pause for a moment to consider the riches of God's grace and mercy that have come to us as a, a, an astonishing result of God's rejecting Israel, it does several things to us. First of all, it makes us grateful, doesn't it? Because we were not the people he initially chose. We were strangers to the covenants of promise, as Paul says in another one of his letters. Oh, it begins to work a great gratitude. Second of all, and this is specifically stated here in verse 12 as we continue reading, how much more will their full inclusion mean? There's hope that emerges. If it's been this good for the Gentiles in this age where God has actually turned from Israel, hardened them so that he could, he could uh, uh, invest his time and energy, if you will, in rescuing Gentiles. If it's this good right now, what will it be later? We're gonna come back to this thought. Here's the third thing it does, and we begin to see this emerge in verse 17. When we read, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And then Paul writes in verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Gratitude, hope, and humility. Never look at the Jews as if, well, you know, they got what they deserved. Oh. Gratitude, hope, humility. Uh, verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the, branch, toward the branches. 
Verse 20, second half, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. It's a humbling thing that God would turn away from the first people he chose and pursue any of the rest of us. But that's exactly what he did. Here's a fourth response, verse 22. Paul writes, note then, and, and the word note, as it, that's the English word, but the Greek word behind it actually has a little more force. It's like, look at this. You gotta see this. You gotta be alert to this, all right? Look at this. The kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. How did they fall? Because of unbelief. Closed their ears, the ears of their heart, closed the eyes of their heart, said to God, no. And so God's discipline and judgment fell in great severity, but also God's kindness And Paul makes it very personal to you. How kind has God been to each of us just to make himself known? Some of you have come out of backgrounds where there's no religion whatsoever. And yet God broke into that non-religious life you were living and began to draw you out and say, come find me, hands extended. Some of you grew up in very religious homes, but there was no gospel in it. And in God's kindness, he broke into that false religion, hands extended, and said, come here, come find me. And you did. What kindness. What kindness. Many Gentiles believe because God has turned Israel's rejection into Gentile salvation. Now, here's, here, here's the second many. Look at, now go back to verse 12. You've got to, oh, Lord, we need hard eyes to see this. This is really good. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, I'm reading this again, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, present, let's like right now, Paul's day, our day, how much more will their future full inclusion mean? You see, there's a future purpose that God has already planned from long ago, and Paul uses, we use two English words, full inclusion, to, to try to convey uh, the, the meaning of one word that Paul is using here. It's the same word that in verse 25 is translated fullness. So full inclusion, fullness. Look at verse 25 with me because this will, this will help in some of the understanding. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness, or we could even say the full inclusion of the Gentiles has come in. And when you begin to study this and ponder it for just even a few seconds, really, you, you realize that the terms that Paul is using uh, with reference to the Jews, verse 12, and then with reference to the Gentiles, actually seems to have some numeric quantity. Now, he doesn't give us a specific number. He doesn't say it's a million, it's a billion. He just says the fullness, the full inclusion. And he's asking a question, how much more will Israel's full inclusion mean? Skip to verse 15 because here's a second reinforcement of the, or second expression of this truth that reinforces the power of it. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, present tense, that's what's going on in Paul's day, that's what's going on in our day among Gentile nations. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead. All right, so back up from this. Let's think through it. If, if Israel's present rejection 
means the salvation of all kinds of Gentile nations and people groups and families. What is it going to mean when God really blows the doors open and says, all right, it's time for me to talk with Israel again and, and stir them up again to life, to actually bring dead people from their spiritual graves to life again? And we don't know other than we read passages like we began the service with, Revelation 7, where John has a vision. And you know what? If you read the whole context there, that's not actually the full crowd of the redeemed. But it's still a huge number, isn't it? Just huge. Paul's point seems to be simply this. If God's work is this spectacular in our day, and so let me first put it in his context. Here's Paul, who at the end of his ministry got, uh, you know, met the risen Christ face to face, the great encounter on the road to Damascus, taken out into the wilderness, prepared over multiple years to go preach the gospel, and then he begins, and he's worked all the way, as he says in another passage, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, but that means he's been into cities like Antioch and Galatia and Cilicia and, and uh, uh, Ephesus. He's planted churches. He's strengthened the saints who's been there. He has witnessed the gospel power at work to save hundreds, if not thousands at, at this point, and multiplied churches have been established. And his point is this. If the gospel work is this spectacular at this present moment, what will it be when the, when the, the full number of Jews are brought in? Now fast forward to present day, November 7th, 2021. I would submit to you that Paul could not even fathom then how much greater the gospel work would be in our world today. And I say that in part mostly because I don't know that anybody can really quantify how many true followers of Jesus Christ there are on planet Earth. I've seen estimates from several hundred million up to uh, a little over two billion. And, and you'd have to just you know, dig in a little deeper to find out what parameters they're using for determining that. But let me just share one thing with you. Several years ago, I had an opportunity to make multiple trips into China with friends of ours who were uh, initially going in to teach English but got connected uh, with leaders and members of the house church. And what a, what a blessing it was to meet them, an opportunity to learn of God's work in a very difficult place. So I'm not talking about the church or the state-sanctioned church. I'm talking about the real church of Jesus Christ that he is building from the ground up in obscure places, in hard places. Many of the pastors that I interacted with had already spent time in prison. And it's just a given there. If you're gonna follow Jesus, you're gonna pay a price. And if you're gonna be a pastor of a church there, you're going to jail sooner or later. They didn't like being there, but they also understood that's nothing in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ personally and being able to preach and teach his gospel to those who need it. How exciting it was to meet first-generation believers whose parents had grown up on, under the iron fist of communism and the naturalism and Darwinism that I just alluded to earlier saying, there is no God, there is no God, there is no God. But then God decides it's time to move through China. And the estimates then, and this is, this is actually close to eight, ten years ago now, talking to the house church leaders as they networked throughout the nation, the estimates then were that the Chinese church alone was 120 million strong. That's why I laugh when a friend of mine says, oh, our church is the fastest growing church. There are 16 million of us in the world. I'm like, oh, bless your heart. 
See, with these eyes, you can't see it. And while there is a significant work to be done today, right now, because we live in a valley where less than 3% of our friends, neighbors, coworkers, family members are, tr- are genuine followers of, of this Christ, Jesus is still on the move, isn't he? And do you see, to put it in its larger context, how Paul's great sorrow and unceasing anguish that he wrote of back in chapter 9 that inspired him to pray in chapter 10 is giving way to a greater hope of glory. It's coming. Verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Why is it so important to operate in the awareness of this mystery? And when the Bible talks about a mystery, it's stuff you would never know unless God showed up and told you about it. Well, he just did. Right? So there's no mystery left in it. Like we can know. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. That tells you something. There's a whatever number God has fixed on the Gentile fullness, that has to be reached. And when it is, then, you know, the old saying, Katie, bar the door. Because Israel's going to be brought back in. And that's why Paul, again, quoting Isaiah, how many times has he done that in the letter to the Romans, verse 26, and then this way, all Israel will be saved. How do we know that? Isaiah 59, 20, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And now he quotes a portion of Jeremiah 31 that Matt read before we received the offering. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God's gonna do it. So how do we respond Well, we're back to hope and humility and awe and gratitude. But a real practical point of application, this is part of the reason we rejoice for the privilege of supporting the Karpenkos who are actually gospel partners doing gospel work in Israel. I mean, that's the hardest nation on planet Earth to reach with the gospel at the moment. Less than one half of 1% of that population would affirm this gospel and, and say we are followers of Jesus. Oh, it's, it's tough going for them right now. But can they, can they continue to serve in hope and faith? Yeah, there it is. We just stared at it. How, how wonderful to be in Israel when God blows the doors open and says it's time. So we pray for the Karpinkas. And we ask God to bless our, what is our support per month? I should know that, 175 we, we had, I mean, when you think of $175 that Gospel Hope sends, you know, to help support the Karpenkos and keep them in ministry, I mean, that's so small in comparison even what they need, but we say, oh God, bless it, sanctify it, multiply its effectiveness over and over again, and let, let their gospel ministry result in fruit, because some Israelites are saved even now, right? Remember? Some, many, some, many. We're, we seem to be in the some room, so we pray. But then there, there's one other thing that becomes obvious. We remain faithful even in the work that God's called us to do right here, right now because we, praise God, we are still in the many Gentiles will come to him. I know it's tough. I know some of you have had long conversations and prayed for months and years for the salvation of family and friends and he's, it's like nothing. God, what's going on? Is, is the problem on my end? Are my prayers broken? Are you not hearing? Is the gospel failing in somehow? Mm-mm. You're, you're looking with these eyes. And that's where you open 
your Bible to places like Romans 9, 10, and 11 and say, there it is. There are the wills and the shalls. So I will persist in prayer. I will continue to share the gospel uh, because if it's this great, how great then, oh Lord, let it all come and just take us to Revelation 7. Does that make sense? God has consigned all to disobedience, verse 32, that he may have mercy on all. I love that. Would you bow your heads with me, please? As we look to the Lord in prayer, have you experienced that mercy? Dear friend, have you known the rescuing mercy of God Almighty? Say, I don't know if I have. Well, he stands before you today, hands extended as Paul described. Your part is to come to him. Say, how do I come to him? You come to him in faith. You believe. God, I believe the witness and record of creation. I don't understand it all, but I believe you've created me. God, I believe the the record of the gospel that says I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness. I believe that you have the power and the desire to forgive my sins. Will you forgive me? It's a prayer like that. That's how you come to him. God, I need you. Have you known mercy? Some of you who know Jesus Christ personally, some of you have known him a long time and you're, you're still praying, but you've grown a little weary and discouraged even in praying for a loved one or a friend who seems so hardened to the gospel. Oh, we've seen it time and time again in this very passage, haven't we, that God loves to show mercy even to those who aren't looking for him. So can you just pray right now again with fresh faith and energy? Lord, I haven't been praying as much lately. Honestly, I've been a little discouraged, but I'm seeing it again. Many. Promises for many. Oh, please include my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, my child in the many. Please, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Oh God and Father, we ask that you would seal to our hearts every word of truth and that you would cause to fall away from our minds and hearts any word that I have misspoken here that you would remove all confusion, doubt, and fear and give us a great vision of Christ and his glory and of the gospel mission before us. How we thank you and praise you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.